Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. What I want to do this morning is to help you be the person that God can use to do that. All of us want to make a difference in our lives. All of us want to leave something behind that lasts longer than us. So how do you make a difference? How do you be a person? What does it take to be the person that God can use? Uh, we were in uh, Mobile a week, or, uh, week and a half ago, and uh, on, for breakfast, we had uh, breakfast with Coach Mike Godfrey, who coached with uh, Pittsburgh for a number of years and other schools, and, and then ended up about 15 years with ESPN as an analyst and a commentator. Uh, for the SEC football games for a number of years. Now he works with a ministry called Team Focus, which is helping young men that don't have a dad uh, go to camps, learn etiquette and man- etiquette and manners and, and everything that they need to learn to have the best possible chance to succeed in life. While we were sitting at breakfast, we got to talking about his coaching legacy, uh, what he's left, because... The further you are out of coaching, the less people remember that you were ever a coach or that you did anything. And it was interesting as I began to ask him, so who is it that came in under you that you believe you had some influence over? And he said, well, he said, uh, one would be the head coach of the Green Bay Packers. He started as a graduate assistant under me. He said, I don't know how he got my cell phone number. He called me one day and said, Coach, if you'd let me just do anything to help with the team, uh, I'd just like to learn from you. And he said, now he's head coach of the Green Bay Packers. He said, head coach of the Baltimore Ravens, got his start in coaching with us. He said, Urban Meyer got his start in coaching with us. Urban may need to call Mike. Um, (laughs) Florida fans are in mourning this morning. (laughs) And then... uh, Thursday night, uh, we were, uh, several of us were in uh, Nashville this week working on uh, curriculum uh, for Courageous and talking about how to raise up the next generation and for men to take the role of leadership that they need to take in their families. And so Thursday night, we went to dinner uh, with Jerry and Priscilla Shire and Anthony Evans. Anthony Evans is the son of Tony Evans, who's uh, spoken in our church twice and is one of the key leaders in America today as a pulpiteer and as an influencer. His daughter Priscilla is married to Jerry and they have three boys. The conversation that pursued around the table as we began to talk and, and especially Alex and Stephen and I were down on that end with them and as we began to talk about their lives, I just began to think of the influence of a man like Tony Evans who does travel a lot and speaks to a lot of people, but I'm sitting at a table with two of his children that are carrying on the ministry and the legacy that he has. And Anthony is a top recording artist and singer and performer and just phenomenal guy. Here's Priscilla who's writing women's Bible studies that tens of thousands of women are using. She's becoming one of the premier influencers of women in America today. And when I got in the car, I thought, you know, Tony and Lois Evans did some kind of good job with their kids. 
But as we began to talk to him, Jerry began to talk about what he's doing to pour into the lives of his three sons. How he gets up with them and he eats breakfast. He takes them to school. He spends time with them. He works with them on projects and on chores and all the things that he does to invest in him. And then Priscilla talking about, you know, I've been trying to figure out for the last three years, how am I the helpmate? How am I the one that helps Jerry be the man that God wants him to be so that our boys can grow up and be the men that God wants them to be? It was a phenomenal discussion. Then on the drive home, Alex asked me the five people that most influenced my life. And Alex asked me the five people that were, and then now the people that I look to that are alive today, the five that, and some of those are different because some of the people that influenced me are dead. I'm not going to say anything demeaning here, but I'm going to say something that's truthful. My dad didn't make the top five on either list. He wouldn't have even made the top ten on either list. So I had to be one who broke the chain to say my dad was a good man, but he didn't make the top ten on my list of most influential people in my life. So if I'm going to be a person that God uses, I, I, a lot of that I had to figure out and I had to help people, have people help me figure that out. So I want to talk to you about it this morning. First of all, it's a person who invests in others. It's a person who invests in others. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Listen, here's the line that you need to remember. Men were his method. He didn't have a publishing company. He didn't have a printing press. He couldn't make movies. Men were his method. Jesus found 12 and invested in them. He taught them. He trained them. He discipled them. He nurtured them. He rebuked them. He did whatever he had to do to make sure that as he was preparing these men to be his disciples, he was also preparing them to be the men that could carry on the work after his work on earth in the physical realm as the person of Jesus Christ was done and he had ascended back into heaven. Men were his methods. Let me ask you a question. Is there anybody that looks at your life today and says of your life, that is a person who's helping me to get to know Christ better? That is a person who is investing in me. That is a person who is influencing me, who is driving things home into my life. One of the words that you could use for this would be the term guardian. In fact, 1 Peter talks about the fact that Jesus is the guardian of our souls. What does a guardian do? A guardian protects. A guardian provides. A guardian is one that sets a direction and sets the boundaries and says, this is what we're going to do. There are legal guardians. And you and I as parents and as believers are guardians of the gospel. And we're supposed to make sure that it gets to the next generation. 
and that it gets to them not watered down and not diluted, but with, with power and with authority behind it. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2 that what he did for the Thessalonians was what a father would do for his own children. And so really the role of a Sunday school teacher, whether it's preschool or children or youth or singles or adults, the role of a pastor is to do for those that are under your influence that which you would do for your own children. Why? Because we're trying to raise up the next generation. This is why we need people in the church to come alongside and help single moms who don't have a good role model of a dad in the home. To take some young men and some young girls and to teach them what a godly man looks like and how a godly man acts and to teach them values and principles by which they can build their lives and not looking for love in all the wrong places, but they would look for love from the heart of God. This is why we do upwards. Not so that we can just have a sports program, but so that coaches can invest in young boys and teach them that there's more to life than winning and losing. It's about learning to work together with other people. It's about enjoying the life and the skills and the abilities that God has given us. It's about investing in those young boys because somebody as a coach somewhere typically influences a young man for good or for bad. It's about what we do in camps, what we do in Bible school, what we do in Disciple Now, what we do with Student Leadership University. It's investing. It's about what we do with SCA. It's building a mindset of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. All of these are things that we do, but the things that we do are only as impactful as the people that are doing them. And so we have to, to learn to be doers. Uh, as one author said, I don't want written on my tombstone, he came, he stayed, he left. What a tragic thing that our, our lives would be defined by. He came, he stayed, he left. He was born, he lived, and he died. But what did he do with his life? You and I should want to leave a legacy of something that lasts beyond us and not in the buildings we build or the legacy park that we build or the programs that we do, but in the lives that we impact, the people's lives who are changed. Warren Wiersbe was talking about a missionary in Pakistan, and the missionary said this, if I had my life to live over again, I would change the lives of men because you haven't changed anything until you've changed the lives of men. The only thing I would change about that is you haven't changed anything until you've changed the lives of young boys and young girls. Because they are being bombarded with influences and with voices into their life. Where is the voice that raises them to a higher standard that helps them to believe more than what they're doing or what they're hearing on a daily basis? I, I came in from uh, our trip and uh, Dr. Phil was on. Terry was watching Dr. Phil, and it was the, the, the broadcast was called Gen Y, W-H-Y, Generation Y. And they were showing these young people that were putting metal items under their hands. Why'd you do that? I don't know. 
because they've never done it. They're showing this guy who never wears a helmet and tries to drive his motorcycle as fast as he can and set himself on fire because people dared him to. Drank gasoline out of a pump one night because his friend said, I bet you won't do that. Now, there's a word for that guy. It's a Greek word. He's just an idiot. But, (laughs) I mean, Dr. Phil's sitting there just trying to figure out, why are you doing this? And you know what the bottom line reason for all that insane behavior was? Just wanted to be accepted. I didn't want to be considered afraid to do anything. Uh, You know, I... And the guy said, I've cheated death. I feel like I'm indestructible. (laughs) Yeah, right. Keep setting yourself on fire and see how that works for you. We invest in others. We build into the lives of others. Now, the second thing is that we exhibit a changed life. Remember last week we talked about that we are to learn from God. Jesus said, come to me and learn from me. I was talking to Warren Wearsby a few weeks ago, and he said, you know, he said, I was in a service the other day, and this guy said something. He said, I looked at it, and then I looked at it again. He said, you know, I've been reading that passage for 60 years, and that's the first time that's ever dawned on me, and you know, he's right. He said, this guy was right, and I hadn't seen it in 60 years. I thought, if Warren hadn't seen it in 60 years, I'm in deep, 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 deep trouble. Here's a man that's 81 years old, still learning, still learning, still growing. It's investing in others. It's changed lives. Here's the principle. If you live, you should learn. And if you're learning, you're living. As long as you live, you should learn. And if you're learning, you're living. Howard Hendricks asked one of his mentors one day, how come he kept learning and reading and studying? After all, he's just teaching the same classes all the time at Dallas Seminary. How how come you just keep learning and growing and stretching yourself? Merrill Tenney said, I would rather my students drink from a flowing stream than a stagnant pool. We are to invest in others. So first thing, it's essential that I be a lifelong learner. It's essential that I be a lifelong learner. And here's why that is important. Because my attitude about being a lifelong learner affects my actions. I have to first get my attitude about learning right so that my actions will change. You know what happens to us. We all think this way. Thank the Lord I'm out of high school. I don't have to open another book. Thank the Lord I'm out of college. I don't have to learn anything. I don't want to learn. But to be a lifelong learner means you need to be a student of some things. And that begins with a change of our attitude about learning. We need to be always learning. So let me give them to you very quickly. Number one, my attitude about myself. I need to learn to change my attitude about myself. There are people in the sound of my voice and you kick yourself all the time because you can't do something or because somebody said you couldn't do something or somebody just said something to you one day and it hangs like an anvil around your neck. 
You can't get over it. You've got to change your attitude about yourself. You've got to quit believing what the world says about you and believe what God says about you. That you are loved by him, that you're in the beloved, that you've been set aside, called, chosen, his child adopted into the family. Secondly, my attitude towards sin. I can't make excuses and try to figure out what can I get away with. I have to change my attitude towards sin. If I'm going to be a lifelong learner, if I'm going to invest in others, and I have to change my attitude about what sin is, and sin is not what I want it to be, sin is what God says it is. Thirdly, my attitude at work or at school. My attitude at work or at school. Some of you are already dreading getting out. I got to go to work tomorrow. I can't believe I got to go to work tomorrow. 17% of Americans would change places with you tomorrow. You're going to have to change your attitude about that. You know, you could not have a job. You could not be able to work. You could not be able to pay your bills. Say, well, it's a lousy job. Lousy job is better than no job. You need to change your attitude about work. You need to change your attitude about school. I hate taking this class. Listen, I did that. I said, why in the world? I want to major in history. Why in the world do I need to take geometry? What does that have to do with the price of eggs? And I'm just thinking, why am I taking all these classes? Why am I doing that? So you can be well-rounded in your understanding. And sometimes in things you don't like, you find that you really do like them. And you get excited about it. And typically, you like a subject because of the teacher more than the curriculum. The teacher inspires you to like something. Now, let let me just, uh, let me give you a little peg to hang your hat on here. Your job is what you are paid to do. Your calling is what you were made to do. They pay you to do a job. Your calling is what God made you for, what God created you for. So my attitude toward work and school, my attitude toward others, my attitude toward others. I have to change the way I think about other people, about somebody that's different than me, has a different personality, or has a different skin color, or a different socioeconomic level. I have to change my attitude about those things. My values. I need to develop biblical worldview values to change my values the world is devaluing things that God says are valuable and giving value to things that God says are not important I have to change my love for the lost because typically I don't really care about lost people you know I mean if you know and that happens in the church you get in the church you say man you know I'm saved I'm going who cares about everybody else But when my attitude about lost people changes, then my actions toward lost people will change. But I will never take actions toward a lost person to try to help them know the love of God until first my attitude about them changes. My love for the church will change. You see, because I'll love him because he loves the church, and I'll love the church because the church is supposed to love him. God gave himself for the church. He's coming back for the church. And so my attitude toward the church will tell you, it's not just something I can just throw off when I feel like it. 
It is the assembling of the body of believers that encourage me and inspire me to want to do more than I am currently doing. So, first of all, I'm a lifelong learner. Secondly, I'm a follower. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. You, you know these verses, but I want to ask you to write something in your Bible, and I hope it hangs with you for a while. Mark chapter 1 and verse 16. I love the sound of pages turning. Mark chapter 1 and verse 16. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Now this is the calling of the first disciples. Mark 1 and verse 16. As he was going along, remember what he said to the disciples. Now just stop right there. Remember what he said in the Great Commission? As you go, make disciples. What did he say? What's the first thing he did when he started doing disciples? As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw some guys that he could make disciples. So you can write in the Great Commission right by Mark 1.16 because Jesus was modeling the Great Commission for those first disciples. He was giving them by his own example how they were going to do it. They were going to go along, find people, and call them to follow Christ. So he's modeling at the very beginning of his ministry that which he was going to ask these disciples to do after he was gone. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately... They left their nets and followed him. Now, look at what he says. They're, they're fishermen. Follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. Now, here's the difference. When you're a fisherman of fish, you catch something alive and it dies. Right? Yes. Amen. I, I know some of you aren't fishermen, but to, this will help if you can understand this concept. If I cast a net or a line out into the water and I get something in that net or on that line and I bring it in, it's alive and it's flopping around and it's just moving around and everything. But you let it lay there long enough and it'll die. Right? Are you with me so far? Do we need to go to fishing 101? If I'm a fisher of men... I catch someone who is dead in trespasses and sin and bring them to life. So a fisherman catches live things and they die. A fisher of men catches dead things and they live. That's the difference. And God has called us to go into a world as a follower of Jesus Christ and find people who are dead in their trespasses and sin and feel hopeless about where their life is going and say, you know what? There's a future for you and a hope. And so Jesus calls them to follow him. Now, a follower is an apprentice. It's a picture of someone who learns a trade. Uh, The old trade guilds where somebody would take somebody and teach another person to be a stonemason or a craftsman or an artisan where they would teach and train a young boy from his childhood, even when he couldn't handle the tools. This is what you do and this is why you do this. Why? Because to build the cathedrals in ancient Europe, 
would take generation after generation after generation. You could not build those cathedrals in one generation. It would take decades to do it. So they would have to invest in a younger generation and show them how to do it so that as they were building from the foundation up, that this younger generation would know and learn what they needed to do and why they needed to do it that way so that they could pass it on to another generation. Okay? Now, let's just talk about this for a minute. There are people up here on this platform that play instruments and you know what they have to do? They have to learn how to play. I mean, how many of you have, uh, I don't want to see many hands here because I, I know I'm asking a loaded question. How, how many of you have ever just picked up a guitar and been able to play like Les Paul or Jimi Hendrix or somebody? Just, I mean, just first time. Oh, see, somebody had to teach you. You had to learn from somebody. You had to learn from somebody. They had to say, this is where you put your hands on the fret, and this is where, how you strum this way. And then somebody had to teach you if you played piano or if you played the drums. Because most of us uh, are not natural at those things. And so you have to learn how to do those things. Well, it, it works this way, too. We went on a vacation one time, and I had all my family take a golf lesson. Let me just tell you, there was great joy on that trip. There's my putting cup, which is upside down now. Okay. Now, if I'm going to be a good golfer, don't laugh. If I'm going to be a good golfer and I keep missing putts, then what, what should I do? I should find somebody to watch me on my putting stroke. And make sure I'm not doing something. See, because here's one of the things. You'll hear a golf commentator say this. See, he pulled out on it. And you'll move your head because what you want to do when you're putting is you want to keep your head still over the ball. And you want to be able to hit. You don't want to hit and stop. You want to have a good follow-through. And so if I'm not making a putt, then what I need to know, see, I missed it. I hit that too far back. Now... My partner's not going to say, hey, just pick it up. That's good. He's going to say, that's too far away from the cup. You need to put that out. And I'm going to say, I'm not buying your golf game anymore. Because <laughs> you see, it's not that old gimme rule inside the leather. Well, I guess it is if you keep turning it and turning it. The point is, somebody needs to show you how to do it. That's why all these great tennis pros have what? Tennis coaches. Why in the world does Tiger Wood need a golf coach? He doesn't listen to him. He keeps firing them, keeps changing his swing, and he's going backwards. You know, why do these guys do that? Because they can get in their mind that they're doing something right, but on their back swings, they may not be doing it like they're supposed to be doing it. And it's one little thing that gets changed. Maybe standing too far from the ball. Maybe standing too close to the ball. Maybe standing too close to the ball after you hit it. Some of you got that. <laughs> Why do you need a coach? You need somebody who's been further down the road than you that can show you how to do what you need to do so you can do what you need to do better than you were doing it before you got a coach. You invest in somebody. Now, no instructor is perfect. 
But what you're looking for, if you're going to be a person of influence and if you're going to follow somebody, is is that person in their own life making progress? Write down Philippians 4.9. Philippians 4.9 says, The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the peace God of peace will be with you. So what you ask of yourself and then what you ask if you have somebody says, hey, I want to invest in you, are they going in the right direction? They're going somewhere, but are they going in the right direction? You're following, but are you following them down the right path and down the right road? Turn to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24. Matthew 7 and verse 24. which is our third thing about changed lives is I'm quick to obey. Matthew 7 and verse 24. You see that little phrase there? Everyone who hears. Write down by that, everyone who obeys. It's not just hearing, it's obeying. I learn to obey. Jesus gave the illustration of houses built on rock and houses built on sand. Storms are going to come. Trials are going to come. Adversity is going to come. Everything's not going to work out like we want it to work out. Everything's not going to be perfect. Life has its bumps and its potholes and its detours and its ditches. What are we going to do? It depends on where we've built our lives. If we've built our lives on the Word of God or if we've built our lives on sand, which will wash away. Is it on the rock or is it on the sand? How will we respond when trials come? If, if I'm going to respond well in trials, I need to be a lifelong learner. I need to be investing and being invested in, and I need to obey what I have heard. It's not enough for somebody to give you information about what you need to be doing. You need to obey what you've heard. You need to take the Word of God and obey what God has spoken to you. So here's the question. Are you obeying the truth that you've learned? What did you do with last week's sermon? Did you do anything with it, or did you just write down notes, stick it in your Bible, and throw it away when you got home? What did you do with what you heard last week? I'm just, it's a simple question. What did you do with what you heard in Sunday school last week? Did you do anything with it, or did you just say, oh, you know, it's a good class? I guess we'll have a good class next week. What are you doing with what you're learning? Because if you and I are not obeying what we're learning, then we're not making progress. We're just becoming more intelligent about things, but we're not acting on them. And we're a sponge soaking up, but the sponge has to be squeezed out or it'll get mildewed and rotted and stink. God didn't save us to sit soaking sour. God saved us to sit and soak and serve so that we can give our lives to other people. So what does the life of Christ look like? If I'm living a life of obedience, first of all, it is a life of obedience. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. It's a life of obedience. What are you looking for in somebody that you disciple? That they are obedient to the Word of God. That your children are obeying the Word of God, not not all the, the petty things. That's the, the bigger picture is if I learn to obey God, I'll learn to obey the, the little things. It's a life of obedience. Secondly, it's a life of love. John 13, 34, and 35. John 13, 34, and 35. If you're my disciples, you keep my commandments, 
They will know you are my disciples because you love one another. Have you noticed that he didn't say they'll know you're, you're my disciples because you tolerate one another? Or you put up with one another, but because you love one another. It's a life of obedience. It's a life of love. It's a life of faithfulness. It's a life of faithfulness. John 15, verses 8 and 16. In John 15, Jesus talks about bearing fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. You see, I want to have a life, if I'm going to raise up the next generation, I want to have a life that has fruit, more fruit, and much fruit, which means I've got to invest time. I've got to be obedient. I've got to be loving, and I have to be faithful myself. The Scripture says continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Continue. Now, let's go back to a verse that we are all familiar with out of Proverbs. And in fact, you can quote it to me. Train up a child. Train up a child in the way he should go. Now, what does that mean? First of all, that's not a promise. It's a principle. Proverbs is not a book of promises. Proverbs is a book of principles. So it's not a promise. It's a principle. To train up a child in the way he should go means this. Train up a child literally according to his bent, according to his personality. You see, here's what happens in our society. You know, the the oldest boy is outgoing and he's aggressive and he's a great athlete and and the the middle boy is is a little more introverted and a little more in the creative side but the teachers in the class if they watch those kids and they get the same teachers they'll say something like this why aren't you like your brother more outgoing so that's not the way god made him why are you trying to make him into something god didn't make him to be Don't ask one of your children to be identical to the other one, even if they're identical twins. They're going to be different. They're made differently. They think differently. They're wired differently. And you have to parent differently according to which child you're dealing with. You have to discipline differently according to which child you're dealing with. Some children will respond to a certain kind of discipline and won't respond to another kind. So when, when the writer of Proverbs, which is a book of wisdom, says, train up a child in the way that they should go according to their bent, he's saying, get to know your child so well that you know how to lead them and train them so that when they, were, when they are old, they will not depart from it because it flows out of the way God made them. It's a natural thing. It's a supernatural thing. So that they become what God made them to be. My mother wanted so bad for me to play the clarinet. Do I look like a clarinet? I mean, my mother wanted so bad for me to play the clarinet. When I didn't know that, she wanted me to take piano lessons. And so she paid for me to take piano lessons. I decided how to get out of that. I didn't practice. Now, Do I wish I could sit down and play the piano? Yes. But I want to get it by osmosis. I want just God to kind of zap me. And all of a sudden, I can say to Heather, get out of the way, Heather. 
I'm going to play this right here. Can I just tell you something? I don't think that's going to happen. Train up a child in the way that they should go according to their bent so that they can be successful in life as a believer, full of Jesus, living according to their calling, fulfilling their days according to the way God made them. That means your child's going to be different than another child. Children inside your own family are going to be different, and that's why it takes work to make disciples. Because everybody doesn't get it the same way. Some people can memorize Scripture easily, and some people can't memorize Scripture. That doesn't mean that one is not as spiritual as the other one. It means they learn different ways. Some people can memorize Scripture that couldn't tell a story if their life depended on it. And some people can tell a story and make you think you're sitting there in the middle of the scene. Why? Just wired differently. Not that one is good and one is bad. They're just wired differently. Now let's get to the last thing. If we're going to be a person that God uses, we have to have lives in absolute dependence on the Lord. And I just want to give you these and let you work through them, and then I want to close. Lives of absolute dependence on the Lord. First of all, there has to be a sense of purpose. A sense of purpose. This one thing I do. And you're going to find out why that's number one in just a moment. Second, there's a price to be paid. There's a price to be paid. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, but there's a price to be paid. If I'm going to do what God's called me to do, then I have to pay the price of saying no to lesser things. You're going to find out why that one's in there in just a moment. There are biblical priorities. His will becomes my will. My will is yielded to his will. There's prevailing prayer. If I'm going to be a person that God uses, I've got to be a person that knows how to pray for the people that I'm investing in. By the way, here's what discipling is. Discipling is not a program. It's not an hour. It's not being a part-time tutor. You're going to like this. It's being a lifelong friend. As you're going along, finding ways to invest in other people. It's not, okay, stop, we're going to have a class here from this time to this time. Yes, that's a part of it. But the bigger picture is that you're a friend outside of that setting. And you're investing in them. Prevailing prayer, the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything the disciples did in the book of Acts was dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, the potency of faith. The potency of faith. Believing that God has something incredible that he wants to do through other people. Now, this is a rolling book bag. Let's say that uh, I'm going to go, well, I'll go to the Smoky Mountains. I like the Smoky Mountains. Let's say I'm going to go to the Smoky Mountains, and, and I decide that what I want to do is climb Mount Leconte, which is the highest point in the Smoky Mountains. You can actually stay up there, and the reason you can stay up there is because you're so tired when you get up there that you don't want to come back down. But let's say I go and I want to climb Mount Leconte. Now, if I have a guide that goes with me to help me on that trip, and he's going to tell me the night before, you need to drink a lot of water, you need to, you need to uh, dress lightly because you're in layers because you're going to need to take things off, but you don't need to take anything that's non-essential because this is a steep path. You're going to go up about 7,000 feet, 
and, and it's going to take you some time, and you don't t need to take anything non-essential. In a couple of weeks, some of our people are going to climb the snake path at Masada, where you go from 1,300 feet below sea level to 500 feet above sea level, and if you climb it in the right time, you do it in 55 minutes to an hour. And I did it in 58 minutes, thought I was going to die, and all I had was a bottle of water and a couple of people to make sure I didn't pass out. Well, let's say I'm going to climb Mount Lacant. Okay? So I get up and I show up the next morning and got my bag. I'm ready. Let's go. Uh, sir, that's, uh, that, that's not going to be. Oh, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. I'm going to take this right here with me. It's got wheels on it. In fact, if I hit a little rough spot with some rocks, got a handle right there. Get tired of carrying it that way. Got a handle right here. I'm ready to go. Let's go. Let's go Mount Lacan. Let's go. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's take a walk up the hill. So I start walking up Mount Lacan, and I get up a few hundred feet, and I start thinking, this sucker's heavy. And this thing's weighing me down. I mean, are we going to be there in a minute? No, it'll be a couple more hours. You just keep coming. And then so I, what I do is I start along the way, and I put that bag down, and I open it up and say, okay, see, what can I get rid of? Oh, DVD player. Don't need that. Uh, oh, the New York Times when they covered fireproof. Kept a copy of that. That was pretty impressive. I don't need that to go to Mount Lacan. Uh, a golf towel from the White House. Maybe when I get to the top, the president will meet me there with a stimulus package. <laughs> no, I don't need that. Now, this is important right here. This is a picture of the home that we built uh, after the 94 flood uh, for Habitat for Humanity. I mean, that's a nice thing. You know, you get to the top, you show it off. Look, this is a picture. This is a house that our church built for Habitat. Well, you know, I don't really need that on this journey. And, and oh, this is from the American Red Cross for our disaster relief. Here's a picture of uh, Albany flooded, Albany State flooded. And, and well, we helped them, but, uh, you know, that's... Man, that's a long time ago. I don't need to carry that with me. And Oh, look, a Ken Jenkins calendar. I could, as I'm climbing the mountains, I could look for these little guys. <laughs> I'm sure they're there somewhere. Or maybe him. Nah, I won't, I won't notice. Oh, uh, that's what I'm looking for. While I'm climbing the mountains, I want to do a black bear. And since I may not know a black bear when I see one, I'm going to have this picture so I can go, No, you, that must be your mama that's looking at me. <laughs> so I don't need that. Well, I love truth, but I really don't need this old truth record on the road, Dallas, Memphis, Mobile. It's got some good songs on it, though, but, you know, I don't even have a record player. Why am I taking that? And so, and then I, oh, another Ken Jenkins calendar. Wow, I'm just, maybe I'll get up here and see what I can see from the top of Mount Lacan. No, I don't need that. And, well, there's another Ken Jenkins calendar, and I don't need Oh, there's a picture of bears in the trees by Ken Jenkins. I, uh, maybe I'll just see the bears in the trees. And, oh, here's Student Leadership University. Here are the things I learned, the characteristics of a bull shark. I wonder if I'll meet any of those, of a nurse shark, a mako shark, a black-nosed shark. I don't think I'm going to meet any of those on Mount Lacanton. Oh, here's the, here's the table piece from when I spoke to a group of pastors of Facing the Giants. I could get up there and... Maybe I ought to wear my Sherwood Pictures hat so everybody know I was part of Facing the Giants and, and I could take that up to the counter of Mount Lacanton. Well, I probably don't need to take that with me right here. Oh, here's, uh, 
Here's my book on the making of the masters. I love golf, and I go to the masters every year. Maybe I could read this on a journey, and I really don't need to take that with me either. In fact, I don't even need that. You know what we do in life? We pack a lot of stuff into our schedules and into our time that we don't need. And you got this window from birth until they move out of your house. From birth until they go out of the youth ministry. We've got this window. And we don't get to do it over. And so if I'm going to make it to the top, I don't need to take all this stuff with me. I need to go lightly and get there as fast as I can so that I can show other people how to get to the top so that they don't walk through life carrying things they don't need. And I can get down to the essentials and the important and the primary and not focus on the secondary. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.